We're all familiar with the phrase, uh, power corrupts, and the proverb that not only power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. What is it about power that causes corruption? What is it about having power that tends to corrupt people? Well, there are probably lots of things that we could say, but one of the things that seems to go hand-in-hand often with power is pride. Often, whenever somebody has power, even if it's just a small measure, but especially if it's a great measure, we will find power's natural twin, and that is pride. And pride is one of the most corrosive, most dangerous sins that Scripture warns us about. It's not one of the more flashy ones. It's not one of the ones that tends to get the most attention. But it is one of the ones that the Bible uh, warns us strictly against. One of the sins that, uh, again, we tend to overlook, but that is extremely dangerous, as we're going to see in our passage this morning. What we are going to find in Daniel chapter 4 is a king with immense power. Nebuchadnezzar was undoubtedly the most powerful person, the most powerful king in the world at that time. And with his great power came great pride. We have already seen hints of that in earlier parts of the book of Daniel. But what we're going to see today in this passage are three things in particular. Number one, God is able to humble even the most powerful and prideful of men. And that ought to encourage us. Because sometimes we find ourselves under the rule of not only powerful, but also prideful and arrogant people. Sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. Could be at work, could be a government official, or all kinds of things in between. Sometimes we find ourselves under the thumb of powerful and arrogant people, and it's encouraging for us to be reminded that God is able to humble them. That there's not a man on earth who is more powerful than God or outside of God's control. But the story is also going to remind us that if God can humble the most powerful of men, that means he can also humble us. And we may not ever be in the position of someone like Nebuchadnezzar. We may not ever have that much power. But it only takes a little bit of power to be tempted to pride. And we want to humble ourselves before God rather than God needing to humble us because we have become proud and refuse to humble ourselves. And then third, we're going to see that Nebuchadnezzar is a foil, so to speak, for the greatest king. Nebuchadnezzar was a proud, arrogant king who needed to be humbled by God. But by contrast, he reminds us of the greatest king, the eternal son of God, who was in the highest position, but rather than being proud, he humbled himself and lowered himself for our good, for our salvation, and As a result, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the highest name, the name above 
all names. So all three of those things are things we're going to see as we work our way through Daniel chapter 4. Now the first thing I want you to notice about Daniel chapter 4 is it appears to be written by Nebuchadnezzar himself. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is speaking here. He's the one who is addressing us in this chapter. Verse 1 begins, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar himself has something he wants to say. And he wants everyone to hear it. He is uh, announcing, it's like he's writing a letter or sending out a decree. He's got a story that he wants us to tell and that he, uh, that he wants to tell and that he wants us to hear. He tells us in verse 2 what it is he wants us to know. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. So God has done some things for me. God has shown some things to me. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I want everybody to know about these things. I want to tell everyone about what God has done and about what God has shown me. And then he says in verse 3, he says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, if we have been paying attention to what Nebuchadnezzar says and how Nebuchadnezzar acts so far in the book of Daniel, verse 3 ought to get our attention. And we ought to say, well, This does not sound like the Nebuchadnezzar that we have met so far. Something has happened to this king. Something has changed this king. Because remember, back in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he wanted interpreted. He had a dream about a four-part statue. It was gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And none of the men in the kingdom could interpret the dream for the king because he wanted them to not only interpret the dream, but also tell him what the dream was. Only Daniel was able to do that because God revealed the dream to Daniel and gave Daniel the interpretation. And here's what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, the top of that statue, the gold part of the statue, that's you and your kingdom. The next part, the silver part, that's another kingdom that's going to come after you. An inferior kingdom, but your kingdom's not going to last forever. There's going to be another kingdom after you, and then another kingdom after that, symbolized by the bronze, and then another kingdom after that, symbolized by the iron. And then, what did Nebuchadnezzar do? The next thing we see Nebuchadnezzar do in chapter 3 is he builds a massive statue of gold from head to toe and makes everybody worship it. As if to say... I don't care what God said in that dream. My kingdom is going to last forever. Gold from the top all the way down. No silver and bronze and iron. No kingdoms coming after me. Just my kingdom forever. But now Nebuchadnezzar is saying, the Most High, His kingdom lasts forever. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar to cause him to go from saying, in effect, my kingdom is going to last forever, to now acknowledging it's God's kingdom, not mine, that's going to last forever. That's what he's going to tell us in the rest of this chapter. So Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And uh, again, this dream is disturbing to him. And so he calls all of his wise men and counselors, wants them to interpret the dream for him, but none of them can or none of them will. The 
the ESV translates uh, this in verse 7 by saying, they could not make known to me its interpretation. But the old King James just simply says that they, they did not interpret the dream. So I wonder, and it's, you know, can't be sure, but I wonder if they had a pretty good suspicion, at least, of what the dream meant, and they just didn't want to be the ones to tell the king the bad news. Because even Daniel is not going to want to tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means, as we'll see in a little bit. So none of the men can or none of the men will interpret the dream for the king. But once again, Daniel is able to do but what nobody else is able to do. And Nebuchadnezzar tells us the reason why. Three different times, in verse 8, verse 9, and verse 18, he says about Daniel, whom he calls Belteshazzar. Remember, he had been renamed when he came to Babylon. He says about, uh, about Daniel that in Daniel is the spirit of the holy gods. Now, that's not how we would say it, right? But that's how Nebuchadnezzar says it because Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan. Nebuchadnezzar worships all kinds of gods. And what he's saying is there is something divine at work in Daniel. We would say God is at work in Daniel. Or we might even say the Holy Spirit is at work in Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't worship only one God. He's not become a monotheist. He's not a Jew, right? He believes in all kinds of gods, but he has at least come to recognize that there's some kind of divine power at work in Daniel that's different than what he's seeing at work in everybody else. Uh, And he's right about that. He just is saying it like somebody who doesn't believe the whole Bible, right? He's just saying it like a pagan would say it. So he recognizes God is at work in Daniel, and he says uh, to Daniel, you know, I, I need you to interpret this dream for me, right? And so, um, he, verse 10, he begins to describe it. He says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and so on. So his vision is this enormous tree. Right? And this tree is stretching high to heaven. It's stretching out over all the earth. And the beasts of the field come under it for shade. The birds of the heavens nest in it. Everybody's eating from the fruit of this tree. It's a wonderful, abundant tree that is providing for people all over the place. But then... The tree gets chopped down. There's a watcher, a holy one. Some will say this is an angel, or some will say it's something like an angel. You know, something along those lines. Pronounces this heavenly decree, right? That the tree is to be chopped down in verse 14, right? Chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. The tree is to be no more. But... The stump is to be preserved, and there's a band of iron and bronze put around the stump. And then we start to get the impression that this dream is not just about a tree, that it's about a person. Because then it begins to say in verse, uh, middle of verse 15, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. So already we've got an idea, right, that this tree represents a person. And the chopping down of this tree represents the end of this person's 
fruitfulness, abundance, at least temporarily, and that this person is going to become like a beast. He's no longer going to have his role as a man, and he's going to be humbled lower than anybody would ever want to be humbled, right? His reason is going to be taken from him, and he's going to be given the mind of a beast. And this is going to last for seven periods of time, right? Verse 16 says, let seven periods of time pass over him. And then it says in verse 17, here's why this is going to happen. It says, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, this is the purpose, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. In other words, the reason why this is going to happen is so that Nebuchadnezzar and everybody else will learn at least three lessons. Number one, right, that God is the ultimate ruler and he can put any man in charge of it he wants to. Right? That's number one. And number two, Most High rules the kingdom of men. That's one. Number two, God gives it to whom he will. And number three, he sets over it the lowliest of men. You might think you're great and super important because you're over this great kingdom, but actually you're just a lowly man. And so God wants Nebuchadnezzar to know, God wants all of us to know that whatever it might look like on the outside, God is always the one who is in control over every kingdom of men, and he's always the one who puts those in authority, who are in authority, and he can remove them whenever he pleases. So that's the dream as Nebuchadnezzar relates it to Daniel. Daniel is also troubled by this dream. Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by it when he received it. Daniel is troubled by it when he heard it. Verse 19, that he was dismayed and his thoughts alarmed him. Daniel doesn't like this dream and he doesn't want to tell it to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar can tell, apparently, because the king says to him, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Don't be afraid that I'm going to have your head when you tell me what the dream said, because I want to know what this was about. And Daniel says, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Now, I want you to notice this. I want you to notice that Daniel, though he has been brought from his homeland to Babylon as an exile by force by Nebuchadnezzar, though in the previous chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had three of Daniel's friends thrown into a fiery furnace because they wouldn't worship his idol, Daniel still does not want this judgment to come upon the king. He doesn't hate Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't want bad things to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He does not, that's why he says, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Here's what the dream is about, right? Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and so on. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. You are the tree. In one sense, that would be flattering, right? You're a great big tree over all the earth, powerful, strong. But we know the other half of the dream. This tree gets chopped down. 
Right? He says, verse 23, Because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. And so on. Verse 24, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. In other words, God is the one who has determined this. The decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. You are going to be, you have been at the highest place. You are going to be humble to the lowest place. You are going to become like a beast. You're going to think like a beast. You're going to live like a beast. You're going to eat like a beast. And he says, this is going to happen till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You're going to experience this great humiliation, this humbling, that you're going to become like a beast until you recognize, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are not God. That you are not the one who ultimately reigns over everyone. Which is how you were acting in chapter 3 when you acted like you could decide and decree who or what people had to worship. You are not God. And you're not in this position as king of this great Babylonian empire because you are great. You are there because God has put you there and he can take you from there anytime he wants to. And until you learn that, you're, not, you're going to be barely human. You're going to be acting like an animal. Therefore, O king, he says, verse 27, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel's counsel to the king is to repent. This king, this is a word of judgment from God against you. So you need to repent. And if you will repent, perhaps God will delay the judgment. Perhaps there will be a lengthening of your prosperity. I don't want this judgment to come upon you. I would rather you repent. In this way, Daniel is unlike Jonah. Remember Jonah, who was sent to Nineveh to tell the people of Nineveh, God's judgment is coming upon you. You 40 days, and the judgment of God will fall upon you. And what happened? The people of Nineveh heard that warning of judgment. They repented, and Jonah pouted. He was mad, angry. He didn't want God to show mercy to the Ninevites. He knew if they repented, he would show mercy to the Ninevites. And they did repent, and God did show mercy to them, and Jonah didn't like that. Daniel is not like Jonah. Daniel wants the king to repent. He doesn't want this judgment to come upon them. And Daniel knows what Jonah knew and what we should all know, which is that every warning of judgment is an opportunity to repent. Whenever we preach the gospel, share the gospel with someone, tell someone about Jesus, one of the things we have to say is there is such a thing as judgment. We are sinners and we deserve God's judgment. We have rebelled against God. We have done our own thing. We've ignored God. We've sinned against God. And we deserve the judgment of God. But we tell you that 
so that you will have an opportunity to repent. Because if you will turn from your sin and you'll trust in the Savior, you'll trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for sinners, who rose again on the third day. If you trust in Him and you turn to Him, then God will wipe out your sins. There will be no condemnation for you, no judgment to come upon you. Every word of judgment, every pronouncement of judgment is an opportunity for us to repent, for us to break off our sins, to warn others to turn from their sins. And and notice in particular what Daniel encourages the king to do. When he says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness, he goes on to say, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. That's a theme that runs all throughout the Bible, right? That God cares for those who are oppressed, but a lot of people don't. The world tends not to care about those who are oppressed. It tends not to care about the widow, the orphan, the poor. But all over the Bible, God tells us that He cares about the widow, the orphan, the poor, the oppressed. And that so should we. That's something that we need to remember. One of the the challenges that's going on maybe sort of under the surface in our culture right now is a disagreement about who is really oppressed. Right? But without solving that quandary, we all need to be able to say we do care about the oppressed. We do want to minister to the oppressed. We do want those who are being oppressed to no longer be oppressed. If we side against the oppressed, then we're probably not listening to God. Because God cares for those who are oppressed. I'll say it this way. If we don't care for those who are oppressed, we don't care about what God cares about. And that's that's not where we want to be. So, show mercy to the oppressed, he says to the king. And uh, we don't know if the king took his advice or not. We don't know if he listened. It was a year before this dream came to fulfillment for Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps that's an indication that for a time Nebuchadnezzar repented. Maybe that's why it was a whole year. We don't know. But at the end of 12 months, it says, the king was walking on, his, uh, on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he said... Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? This is the kind of thing we would expect a king to say. In that sense, it's not shocking. But given what the king has just been told and reminded of by God through Daniel, he should have known better, and we know it's problematic. It's typical of kings and powerful people to be arrogant and proud and think that all the good things they enjoy are due only to them, to their work, to their accomplishment, to their greatness, to their genius. It's never true, but it's often what they think, and sometimes what they say, and that's what the king of Babylon said. And as soon as he said it, God brought the judgment he had warned Nebuchadnezzar about upon him. It says in verse 31 that while the words were still in the king's mouth, 
there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And all the things that we were told in the vision and all the things we were told in the interpretation come true of the king. Verse 33 says, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. We don't know exactly how long these seven periods of time were, but it was long enough right, that he didn't look like himself anymore. This is what happened that made Nebuchadnezzar say at the beginning of chapter 4 that it's God's kingdom that reigns forever. And what's implied by that is, and not mine. Not mine. Verse 34, he says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Not my kingdom. I have my kingdom taken away. Because God has the authority to do that whenever he wants. His kingdom lasts forever. And here's what else Nebuchadnezzar learned. Verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? It's not just the great powerful kings that God can say, you're not as important as you think you are. Nebuchadnezzar says, none of us are as important as we think we are. None of us are God. None of us are on our own, immortal irreplaceable, so important that people ought to bow down to us, even if it's just a small group that we have some power or authority over. Compared to God, we're nothing. Now, are we important in God's eyes? Absolutely. We're made in the image of God. We're the crowning work of His creation. But we're not God's. We're not God. And God alone can do whatever he wants. And God alone can act and nobody else can call him to account or say, why'd you do that? You shouldn't have done that. You can't do it that way. You didn't have my permission. Nobody can say that to God. And God's the only one that nobody can say that to. Nebuchadnezzar said at the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and and splendor returned to me. So remember, the stump was left so that his kingdom would be confirmed. Right, His kingdom is restored to him after this period of humiliation. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar says he learned from this. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and all his ways are just. Think about that. How effective was this humbling of Nebuchadnezzar that when he comes back to his senses, when he is restored to his power, he does not shake his fist and say, I can't believe you did that to me. That was unfair. That was unjust. I didn't deserve that. 
He comes back from one of the worst humiliations that anyone has ever had to experience and says, essentially, I deserve that. Everything God does is just. He humbled me because I deserved it. It was right. And, he says, finally, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. James says, God opposes the proud. Gives grace to the humble. The Bible encourages us to humble ourselves so that at the proper time God might exalt us. The lesson for Nebuchadnezzar was not just for Nebuchadnezzar, it's also for us, because all of us are tempted to pride. All of us are guilty of proud thoughts, proud words, proud actions. And Nebuchadnezzar's story not only encourages us by reminding us that those who are in power over us and often misuse and abuse that power and act with arrogance and pride, God is able to humble them and one day He will humble them. But it is also to remind us that even if our kingdom is much, 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 much smaller, we too can be easily tempted to give in to pride and we too must resist the temptation lest we be forcibly humbled by God, which none of us wants to experience. But most importantly of all, as we said at the beginning, Nebuchadnezzar is a contrast to the ultimate king, the true king, the king of kings, who was in the highest place, who had all authority, who was in the form of God, right? because he was equal with God, yet he did not grasp that position and the rights that came with being equal with God. Instead, he humbled himself. Right? He became a man. For, for Nebuchadnezzar to be a great man, a, a great king, and to be humbled at, to the point of acting and thinking like a beast was not as great a a uh, journey of humility, so to speak, as the eternal Son of God entering the world as a human being, as a baby. He humbled himself to the point of being not only born as a man, but living an obedient life and submitting to one of the worst forms of death ever invented by crucifixion. And he did that For our sake. He laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven. He was raised from the dead, exalted to God's right hand. One day everybody's going to bow before him. One day everybody's going to confess that he is Lord. But the time to do that is now. As Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar, to break off your sins and to turn back to God, to trust in Jesus, the Messiah, and the Savior. And then not only that, but Paul says in that passage I've just been referencing in Philippians 2 about Jesus' humility, but to follow in His example, to humble ourselves, to serve others, to count others more significant than ourselves, to pursue a life of humility that pleases God rather than one of pride that is opposed by God. And for that task... We want to pray and ask God for His grace and His help. So let's pray.